Welcome to another episode of Tech Writer Voices. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. If you're listening for the first time, you can view a back file of all kinds of podcasts, at least 80 or 90 of them, at idratherbewriting.com. Just click the podcast button at the top. This podcast is a little different from normal. Usually I interview people, but this is a recording of a presentation that I gave to a group of Brigham Young University, Idaho students about technical writing, about the career of technical writing. And the title of my talk is Debunking the Boredom Myth of Technical Writing. Apparently, one of the common myths that people have, especially students about technical writing, is that it's boring and drudgery. And I'm trying to present an alternative view that gets students excited about technical writing and that paints it as an option for their careers. All right, thanks Josh, I appreciate that, and Robert uh, for your introductions. So I'm really excited to give this presentation, and first of all, you're probably looking at this little mic. Uh, I, I am recording it, it's not any kind of sound projection, but I, I do podcasts, as Josh said, so with all this preparation, I didn't want it to just evaporate afterwards, so I wanted to capture it and then publish it later. But uh, I'm excited to give this presentation because 10 years ago I was sitting in your seat well, not literally, but I was a student in an English program, and I was in a survey class, you know, where they, they give you a little taste of every different literature discipline, and a little bit of deconstruction and feminism and American literature and things like that. And one of them was a technical writer who got up and, and told us about technical writing. And basically her presentation involved formatting of phone books. She talked about how, as a technical writer, one of the things you may be involved in is doing the layout and formatting of telephone books. And I was sitting there thinking, man, this is so boring. This is, I, I don't ever want to do this. I, I made a personal vow to myself that if whatever happened, I wouldn't become like her. And for, for, for the next five years, I tried to make a living as a writer by teaching, uh, by working as a copywriter, by getting an MFA, because you don't really know what else to do once you have a degree in English. And uh, so after, after five years, it was actually at, uh, at the University of Cairo where Josh said, you would be a good fit for a technical writer. And I said, well, I don't really want to go that route. You know, it's so boring, or it's just not very exciting. And um, turns out it's a complete myth. So my my intent today is to try to persuade you against this myth, that it's not boring, that it, there's actually an immense amount of variety in what you do. A lot of people think technical writing involves click this, select that all day long, and it's totally not true. So Josh did an informal poll and among nine students, not very impressive in numbers, but <laughs> <laughs> he found that generally 89% of students felt that Technical writing was boring, right? But I recently did a poll on my blog among professionals and asked them the same question, is technical writing boring? And only 7% said, yeah, that's generally true. So we have 40. More than nine responses. Yeah, there are 220 people who responded to, the, who responded to this poll. 47% said, that's generally false. Technical writing is not boring. And 46% said, well, it's sometimes true and it's sometimes false, which I think is probably just realistic for any profession. Astronauts look like they have a really exciting type of profession, but they spend 95% of their time in meetings and training and things like that. You know, it's very rare that they're up walking about in, in airless space. So why is it that there's this large discrepancy between what a lot of students perceive and the reality? And I think it's because we think that technical writers format phone books. You don't realize that technical writers do a lot more than that. These are some of the things that technical writers create. Video, for example. A lot of people don't realize that video is in, in the uh, handbag of tools that you can create. Um, all kinds as well. Visio diagrams, where you illustrate concepts through pictures. Quick reference material. Uh, and I'm going to get into each of these. I'm just kind of giving you an overview of what I'm going to touch upon We'll get into some of these in more depth. Wikis, illustrations, e-learning, how-to guides, online help, 
flash training, content management, information architecture, usability, and podcasts. So part of the problem with the whole technical writing field is the name. It has the word writer in it, which is both good and bad. A lot of people don't like the word writer because it doesn't describe what we do. If you look at all those things that we had up there, from podcasts to wikis to video to e-learning, a lot of it doesn't involve much writing. And, and in fact, people want to change the name to communicator, which I equally despise because it's so vague. But, but that's what a lot of people like. But these are some of the other names that people like to refer to themselves as a documentation engineer or, or instructional designer or user help dis designer. Um, knowledge, there's a department called knowledge transfer and things like that. So there, there's really no good name for this profession. And that's part of the problem. So when people say, oh yeah, I'm a technical writer, the, the connotation is that, oh, you write. But really it's not true. Um, this is another survey question I asked. Do you do a lot of writing as a technical writer? 41% said that's generally false. So this is kind of mind-blowing to a lot of people that think that they're going to be sitting in front of a computer all day writing to program your VCR, click this, push that, do this. And that's really not true. 41% of people don't, don't do that. And the other 47% said that's only sometimes true. So what I'm trying to do today is to try to expose you to these other non-thought-of uh, activities in hopes to broaden your mind about what, what technical writing can entail. So the first one is video. And for this, I want to, it, video doesn't come across really well in a, in a slide. So uh, I want to play one of them. Now this one right here in the middle, we're, this is a WordPress 2.6 video. WordPress is a popular blogging platform. And um, a couple weekends ago, I was at this WordCamp Utah event, which is kind of like this all day WordPress um, event where people gather and stuff. And the founder was there, Matt Molewig, and he said that this video was watched over two million times. I believe he said million. Uh, I think it was even more than that, but it was watched over two million times. And it really ignited his mind to the idea that there's a lot of power in these videos. And after that, he told me that they now hired a guy to do screencasts, and they're gonna integrate the screencasts all the way throughout WordPress. So I'm gonna play this little video uh, because it's one of the cool things that you can do. And let's hope we have sound here. It's a short video, but it's cool to show what kinds of stuff they can do. Let's take a look at some of the new features of WordPress 2.6. One of the things you'll notice when you're writing posts in 2.6 is the ability to skip back in time to earlier revisions of your content. Whether you decide that things look better a couple of saves ago, you're working collaboratively on a post and want to see the latest changes, or you just want to check out how things have evolved, scroll down to the bottom of the options here and you'll find a full list of the save points, including information about who saved and when. Click on one of the versions and you'll see the exact time that the changes were made. You can even compare revisions. Or click here on Restore to go back to an earlier version. Okay, so you get the idea, right? Now, there's another video that, that this is, I mean, it's not that exciting, right? But you have some jazz music in the background, and, and this guy's kind of going through, he's got a cool accent, and, but it seriously blew them away that they got two million views of this. And, and for release notes, rather than having a list of, oh, this is all what's new in WordPress 2.6, they had this video, and people loved it. And this is really what, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my time creating little videos like this. There's another site that this guy's gotten a lot more creative with his video. This is Harry Miller, and he, he calls it engagement through story, right? But there's one, let me find the one that I like. I, I like them all, but this one I think is particularly funny. Uh, I've been searching this object model for an hour. This should be totally easy. All I'm going to do is make this custom tab on the ribbon active, bring it to the front when certain documents are open. This can't be that hard. Whoa. Weird. Some things are worth fighting for, kid. This ain't one of them. What? I said give it up. The new ribbon model doesn't support the ability to programmatically set any control, group, or tab to be the active control. 
This is part of the design of the ribbon. The main idea behind this is that the user should never be surprised by changes in the UI. They should always be in control of the ribbon, so they always have a consistent experience when working with the ribbon UI. Oh well, guess I'll work on deployment then. At least that should be easy. So he's got even more creative ones, ones on there. But uh, it, he's at Microsoft, and I think he just has like, extra time on his hands or something. <laughs> just kidding. He, he's a great guy. I've met him, and he, he's totally in the multimedia documentation, and he's done a lot of things like this. And uh, he hasn't gotten a tremendous response yet on those, but I, I sat there watching them for a half hour the first time I stumbled across his site. There's one other video that you may have seen. And this is from Common Craft. They do these little videos that people absolutely love. Um, they're, they're done in a way that is completely unique to them, but it shows the power of the ability to do videos in a variety of ways. These four friends are going on a camping trip. They need to bring the right supplies because they're backpacking. The group needs to plan and plan well, so coordination is key. They're all computer users, so they start planning with an email. It starts with one, but then becomes a barrage. Email is not good at coordinating and organizing a group's input. This is the old way. Boo! The important information is scattered across everyone's inbox. This isn't coordination. Let's start over. There is a better way. It requires you using a website called a wiki. Using a wiki, the group can coordinate their trip better. This is the new way. Yay! Most wikis work the same. They make it easy for everyone to change what appears on a web page with the click of a button. It's as easy as erasing a word and rewriting it. The buttons are really important. There are two that are essential. They are edit and save, and they are always used together. Let's see them in action. Here are our camping friends, and this is a wiki website. Like all wikis, it has an edit button. Clicking this button transforms the web page into a document. All you have to do is click it and the web page becomes a document ready for editing. Editing the page means you can add or remove words or change how they look, just like writing a letter. Once you're finished editing, you click save and the document becomes a web page once again and is ready for the next person to edit it. Easy. Edit, write, and save. So those are some of the things that you can do as a technical writer. Um, People, if you created videos like that, people would absolutely love them. And those last guys, they have a unique style, right, that I've never seen elsewhere where they film their own thing. But um, however you want to approach them, as soon as you start to put your content into multimedia, it, it really catches people, people's attention in ways that, that really make you a lot more significant in, in the organization or a lot more interesting. Okay, so the last one was about wikis, right? This is another emerging trend among technical writing is the use of wikis. Raise your hand if you know what a wiki is, otherwise I'll explain it. Okay, well he was explaining it in the last video, which is why I segued with that. Basically it's an editable website um, that anybody can edit. So let's say I throw up a web page and I say, okay, you guys, we're gonna all work together, we're gonna group author this, and you just go and you click edit and then you start writing and you save it and it's simultaneous, um, simultaneously available to everybody. So we have this new wiki called LDS Tech Wiki, the LDS Tech Wiki. Uh, Tech.lds.org has been a site for a long time, but we just recently added a wiki feature to it. And I was having a discussion with a guy uh, in Arizona about the MLS manual. If you've ever been a clerk in a, in a branch presidency or bishopric or something, or, or, or a finance clerk, you probably know what MLS is, it stands for Member Leader Services. It's, the, it's like the program that a lot of people use, well, people have to use to administer church, things like tithing and callings and, and everything. <clears throat> well, my friend down in Arizona said, you know, I really want to rewrite that manual. I, I just don't like it. And, and by the way, I, I didn't write that manual at all. It's, you know, totally predates my time and it's not even in our group right now. But, um, so we have this idea where we're gonna let we think we're going to let him approach it on the wiki and anybody else across the world who wants to join in, share their tips, tricks, how-tos in this software 
can also add to it. So you have this collective user-generated content. And you think, well, where then do I fit in as the technical writer in that? Isn't, isn't this just um, closing out my job? And no, really, what, because there's a whole lot of management that goes on. When somebody makes an edit, you, you would have to make sure it's accurate. You'd have to coordinate it, make sure it fits in with the flow. So you, you, are, you are like the website manager of this giant wiki project. And this other wiki down here, the WordPress Codex, this is a huge wiki. And this is what happens with most wikis when they become popular, is that they get really chaotic and disorganized and they spiral downward and become mazes of confusion. So your job as a technical writer is to prevent that, to maintain order, to make it uh, coherent, um, and to make it still flow. And there's a whole lot of you know, other challenges with wikis. I mean, you have primitive formatting. You have, um, you have the possibility of legal consequences of somebody, you know, if you, if you have a pharmaceutical product or something and somebody writes, yeah, I use this on my dog and it works great. And then you get sued later and so forth. So you have, you have lots of other territory, but it's an emerging trend and it's a, it's a really exciting one. I'm really excited to see if this MLS wiki manual rewrite takes off or if it's, you know, if it never gets above ground or what. Yes. Is Wikipedia a wiki? Yes, of course. It's a, it's media wiki wiki. There's over 97 or more wiki engines, and yeah, it's definitely a wiki. It's it's probably the best example of a successful wiki. It, it often works well for conceptual or reference material. So, in fact, the Department of Defense, no, the CIA, one of the or the FBI, I can't remember. They have something called Intellipedia, and they're using that to they're using a wiki as a means of quickly rapidly disseminating information about intelligence to other agencies. Go figure on that one. Um, it's, I mean, it's like a huge risk because anybody could edit the wiki, but at the same time, it's immediate and you can suddenly draw information out of people who know who may not be regular content publishers. So I'm excited about wikis. Diagrams and illustrations is another facet that I find more and more important. I had a, I had a job as a, as a contractor for EMC working out in Dugway, Utah. Does anybody know where Dugway is? It's kind of like Salmon, Idaho. It's like way in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> but Dugway is about 80 miles southwest of Salt Lake City in the middle of a desert because it's a big biochemical, uh, I don't want to say experimentation facility, but it's something like that, right? Where they test, it's a testing area. And it was super highly secure. I worked in a windowless building for 10 hours a day. And, uh, but the guy, I bring this up because there's the guy who I was writing the documents for seemed illiterate. Um, you give him something in writing and he, it, it would be like, his, like it missed him completely. Um, it just, he couldn't read words. So <laughs> of course he's, he's operating this, this giant facility, well, not a, the whole of it, but a small part of it, he had a major uh, roll in. But he would want me to create everything in diagrams. So I learned Visio and was learning another tool as well uh, in order to create these diagrams. And it turns out that these diagrams, whatever they are, these aren't ones I've created. I just pulled these off, off the internet. Um, people love them. People, it, it reinforces understanding in a way that you wouldn't believe, especially if you're explaining something complicated. The diagram really helps them understand it. And it's a lot of fun to make. It's a challenge to sit down and try to figure out how you're going to represent this technical concept visually. And you can see that a lot of them are workflows that show processes and, and different steps that happen or cycles or just different elements of, a, of a, some kind of um, work model. I really recommend that you add to your tool set um, Visio and, and just learn to represent things visually. Um, it will make, it will come in handy in your videos, in your documentation. So you basically just use videos wherever they come in handy and, and refer to them there. Okay, the other, another huge area that I think is pretty exciting is quick reference material. And I call this the poetry of technical writing because the, the idea with the quick reference is that you take a 200 page manual and distill it down into one page. 
And in order to do that, you have to really look at what's the essence of this? What are the core tasks? What are the core concepts that the user has to know and understand? And then try to lay it out visually and, and, and give it to people. And this one on the upper right is just a template that I use. Obviously, there's places where a picture would go. But uh, when I was first working at this financial firm in Florida, uh, I kept getting requests from people for shorter documents. I'd give them, I would painstakingly create this 65-page manual for how to use this application. And they weren't big applications, right? Because 65 pages is not that, that long. But I'd give it to them, and, and you'd just feel the pain that would go into people. They, they'd, they'd cringe. They hated it. The idea that they would have to read it was just una as unappealing as could be. So I got three or four requests after each project. They would say, do you have like a, you know, a two-page version of this? Do you have something shorter? We're looking at five pages, you know, not, not 55. And so finally I, I broke down. I said, okay, let me, I didn't even have a copy of InDesign. And I got my department to buy that. And I started looking through magazines for a cool layout and things like that that would make it look attractive. And after a couple weeks, I, I produced a, my first quick reference guide and handed it out at the meeting. And all their faces totally lit up. People were really excited about it because they actually read it right there. Um, and, and they asked for more copies um, or they wanted to make sure I had enough copies for their users and things like that. And I added this as a, as a constant deliverable for everything. I now always do a quick reference. And, and they're in various, um, you can have various kinds of quick references. Like if you worked in medical fields or something, you would make something like a one, two, three, whatever uh, image that you could stick somewhere perhaps. Uh, I have a colleague at the church who, he, he caught on to the idea of making these as well. And so he created one for a missionary system and he actually has the ability to, ability to make little cartoons, so, <laughs> which can come in handy as well if you are a cartoonist. Um, so he created these little cartoon icons that represented missionaries in various phases and, and mission presidents, and, and he put it in a quick reference guide. People loved it. They, they were just blown away by it. So uh, definitely, this is one of the more this is one of the more fun things that you do as a technical writer is you try to compress all this information, you, you define the layout, figure out how you want it to look, and then give it to people. Another facet of technical communication that a lot of people don't realize is usability. I was at this presentation a while ago, this was at WordCamp Utah as well, where Cameron Mall, who is an interaction designer at the church, showed this slide. On the left you have one type of gasoline pump, and on the right you have another type. So what do you notice about the gas pump on the left? Uh, where would you think people have been pushing? They've been pushing on the worn out sticker, right, that says 85. When you're really supposed to push, in order to select your type of gas, you're supposed to push the little button on the right. And this other image on the right shows a much more intuitive way for designing a gas pump interface. You put the button right where you, th you would imagine that you should click. So all the time when you're working as a technical writer, you're exposed to software interfaces that are very fresh. They're prototypes. They're, they're not set in stone. You're working with, with the team and they're still building it. So you have an opportunity to go in there and say, look, Joe, this, is, this is, doesn't make any sense. These buttons, they're not in the right order. Um, you, I once made a suggestion that they change the order of buttons and people suddenly thought it was a brilliant idea and, and uh, I felt really cool. So, <laughs> so you, you, you're not really designing the interface, that's more of a skill set for an interaction designer. But as a technical writer, you are by no means exempt from this process. You are the first user. You, <clears throat> you tap into to feedback from users in a way that's very powerful. Uh, a lot of times the, the interaction designers and the developers, they never interact with actual clients. Um, that's not always the case, sometimes they do. But by and large, uh, you interact with them either by giving them training, hearing feedback, sometimes you have problems that you're trying to troubleshoot. So you know what's going through the user's mind. 
And so you bring that knowledge of the user to an interface and say, well, a lot of people are clicking this button. They don't understand this process. They don't realize what happens after you select this. I think we should move this here. I think we should change the name of, of this to something else. And you play, you play a role in this, and it's, it's fun. Um, there's actually quite a bit uh, of difficulty in designing a good user interface. Do you, how many of you guys like the ribbon? That was what Harry Miller in that video was talking about. Do you know what the ribbon is? None of you guys know, know what the ribbon is. Okay, this is, this is Microsoft Word. Let me pull this up. They recently redesigned Word, well, two years ago or whatever. And they came up with this concept called the ribbon. And this is, this is nothing new, but it demonstrates a usability feat. They had, you know how when you're using Microsoft, you sometimes agree to participate in their studies or whatever to send information to them? Well, apparently, <clears throat> they actually do use that. And they did a study where <laughs> they found that 80% that of the features in Word weren't being used. So in their, next, in their latest release, they decided not to add any new features, but to make the features that you do use more prominent. So they decided to take all the features that they thought you would use based on their their, their studies, and put them in a little ribbon at the top, which, as Harry said, is completely uncustomizable so that you have a predictable experience. <laughs> but uh, it, it's an, and a lot of people hate the ribbon, which is funny because you'd think, well, it sounds logical, it sounds like a good idea, but nobody can find anything. <laughs> at any rate, as a technical writer, you are a person who helps shape user interfaces. And whether you work for Microsoft or a little startup, it, it can be exhilarating to make good decisions and good recommendations based on the feedback you're getting from users. Hey, Tom. Yeah. Do you have any uh, inside knowledge or information on why Microsoft changed the default font to Calibri 11? You know, I asked that to a guy who was presenting on Microsoft. I said, I noticed Times New Roman isn't your default font. He didn't have a good answer. He said, I think most people are working online nowadays. They're used to seeing Arial. And they thought that it was just becoming more popular. So yeah, if you're still writing your documents in Times New Roman, then maybe you're you know, a little bit behind. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> now when I see Times New Roman, I, it always catches me, uh, if, especially in an interface, because it just looks so out of place. I'm not really sure. I think also, another problem, or another reason, perhaps, and this just came to me, is that in Word, you, you now have the ability to publish directly to your blog. And I actually use Word a lot for this. Uh, you just write, write your document, and then you, you choose Publish to Post. And let me go back here. So if I choose Publish, and I've published to my blog like that, and I've got Times New Roman as my default font, then it's going to probably be Times New Roman in my blog, which, as you know, it's not the ideal font for online reading. So perhaps that's another reason. We'll get into blogs later. <laughs> you can be assured we won't skip over blogs. Another, another angle or another dimension of technical writing is publishing. And this is actually something that has, consumes a lot of my time. In some writing fields, all you do is work in Word or Notepad, and you give the document to the publisher or the web guy, and they take care of it, right? In technical writing, you are, you are the publisher. You publish your documents. Uh, you, you're responsible for the layout and how it looks and how you want it to look. So, but now this probably doesn't represent at all what I'm talking about. There's another aspect of publishing that refers to single sourcing, which is really kind of a, it's an immense challenge, but it's also a lot of fun. So let's say you start out with a document that you, you think, okay, this will work for the administrators of the application. But then the project manager comes to you and says, well, we also have secretaries and we have regular committee members. And they also, we just want them to have their manuals that have tasks relating to them. And then they say, well, we want a web version, an online help, and we also want a print version of the material, and we want to put it in a CD-ROM to ship it to South America because they don't have high bandwidth. So now you've got a lot of different deliverables. And let's say that you painstakingly 
wrote it all out in Word and you had you know, nine different documents or something. And then the project manager came back and as always happens says, well, we need to change this user interface and this wasn't working. And they don't really tell you that anyway. You just kind of stumble across changes. So <laughs> you, you suddenly have to update and that's what the red square in the image represents. You have to update one part. You want that update to be generated through all the other sub-documents. So the idea that you have a master source which then generates all these other deliverables was at some time referred to as the holy grail of, of technical writing because it was something a lot of people were trying to do but could never really do well. And tools are getting better, but it's still an art. In my, in my deliverables, I have, I'm debating whether to show you, but in my deliver, I think I'll just describe it. In my deliverables, I have a style sheet for print and a style sheet for online medium, for the online content, and they're different. And CSS is very handy to know, by the way. It helps you to define and style things. Uh, but just the ability to, to look and say, well, what kind of layout do I want in one medium, and what kind of layout do I need in another, and to orchestrate all that and make it flawless is something that is an art. And there are a lot of different methods and tools and discussions about how people go about it. But the idea that you just write one document and you don't have to worry about serving 10 different kinds of people in mediums is totally false. But it's, it's part of the challenge and it's, it's part of the fun. I feel like I'm going pretty fast. Does anybody have any questions about anything I've talked about? Yeah. A cascading style sheet. It's a styling language. So, all right. I'll, do you want to do you want to see like single sourcing in action, or should I just keep going? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, is it exciting? Well, I don't know. So I use. <laughs> It is exciting if you have to produce, if you have to create all the different deliverables. It's exciting to see it work. So, <laughs> this is I use a tool called Madcap Flare, and there's lots of others. Uh, you may have heard of RoboHelp or AuthorIt, but I chose this one because I think it does the best job in my skill set for just creating different outputs. So, there's a product I've been working on that I'll pull up, and this is a. This is something that they wanted multiple targets or multiple deliverables. So on the left. Can I interrupt, Tom? Do you yeah. understand what you mean by the word deliverable? Sorry. A deliverable is basically a, what you give your audience. So a deliverable to like your, your users, the people who use a piece of software you're writing about could be one thing. And then the, the deliverable you give to like the computer programmers about how they're supposed to update it if they make changes to it would be something very different. So deliverables is, in the technical writing industry, deliverables is the, the word we use to describe any actual document, whether online or in print, that you give to an audience. That's, yeah. that's what that word Thanks, Josh. Yeah, well, it's kind of a weird word. Um, whatever you describe, your online help and your quick reference guides and your videos, those are all just deliverables. So here, now in this program, they call them targets, so it's even weirder. But I've got all these targets, and these are all the different things that I have to create for the customer. And I've just got them all packaged in one source, right? Because I don't want to have six different documents. So now I've defined the style sheet so that if I want to generate, and I'll just view it because I've already generated, the online help, it will go and run through a cycle to produce something that looks like this. And you have, you've probably seen online helps before, but you have things that they navigate through the left and things like that. Well, I don't want to totally cut and paste all that to create a printed manual. So I have a printed output here, and it will generate to Word. And I can choose other type of uh, programs as well. But it will have the same material. So this is what we call single sourcing. And a, if you're good at it, you don't have to fix a lot of stuff in the Word output. And I've already spent a long time fixing things, so it's mostly good. But that gives you an idea of just publishing. All right, let's go on to blogs, screencasts, and podcasts. And this is a, an emerging trend as well. 
Now you may think, well, what does this have to do with technical writing? How many of you guys on the last product that you, that you bought, whatever, an MP3 player or something, how many of you sat down and read the manual from page one to the end? Raise your hand. <laughs> ha, see, nobody, nobody reads help like that. And it was, it's not intended to be read like that. At the same time, you have this problem where you want to try to make your users power users of the product. People are so accustomed to learning just what, just what they need to know. And they get comfortable in that little realm of what they know. And they never know how to do more of the advanced features. They, they just kind of turn off their learning brain. So it's great if you give them a quick start guide. They learn the basics. But you need a way to ramp them up little by little to spoon feed them. And this is where blogs come in in a powerful way. Because most people want to have a, like a regular contact with their users, kind of like a newsletter for their product. And you can give people little by little tips and tricks and advanced techniques. So this, is a, this screenshot up here is from Betsy Weber's The Visual Lounge. She works for TechSmith, which creates tools like Snagit and Camtasia. And they have a blog dedicated to all their tools. And they often have little video tutorials on it. So as a user, I use both their products. I'll check out their blog and see whatever kind of uh, tips they have. And that way I don't have to sit down on a Saturday morning at an early hour and try to read through a whole manual, try to learn everything at once. So blogging is, is becoming more and more popular. You may get a job as a technical writer. They don't say anything about blogging. And you'll think back to this and say, Tom, you're a liar. But <laughs> the part of the problem is that most people don't understand what, you're, what you do as a technical writer. The companies you work for think, he writes documentation. You know, they, they have no idea, really, of what you do, which is strange. But you, you have to teach them. You have to suggest ideas to them and say, look, we need a way to contact our users. I was thinking about a blog. We put tips and tricks, release notes, announcements, events. What do you think? And they'll suddenly step back and say, wow, that's a great idea. So you have to introduce all these things I'm showing you. You may, you may get a job and all it says is we need a manual for the product. And you have to go and you have to try to win them over to them. Well, you, it's not usually a battle, but like video. You say, instead of writing a, a list of our release notes, why don't we make a cool little video and, and suggest things? And blogs and screencasts and podcasts are one of them. So I have a little clip here that I want to play uh, for a podcast that I've been doing. Well, I just did the day before I came here. It kind of bombed in some respects and others. It was cool. But uh, Mormon.org was recently revamped. Have you guys seen the new site? You have? So it's totally different, right? Let me go to it. They just released that a couple weeks ago. And this is a site intended for uh, people who aren't members of the church, try to uh, give them basics and things like that. And it looks really different from the regular site, right? I mean, you have tons of white space, you have black and orange, you, have, uh, you don't have a family on the front, you have a single lady, you have messages like, um, what happens when I die, things like that. And I thought this would be a cool idea for a podcast. I'll go interview the interaction designers who worked on this, and it'll be a great article for tech.lds.org, which is our, it's like our IT blog site. So I set up meetings, and they were postponed and canceled and rescheduled, and finally one out of three was able to make it. But um, I'll play a clip of what Pepe had to tell me about the white space on this. Now, I noticed there's lots of white space on both the sides. Can you tell me from a design point of view why you guys decided to have so much white space? Uh, we wanted a clean site. We wanted something clean. Um, the idea with this was that we wanted to focus more on the content instead of just uh, background design, noise, and all that. We wanted to concentrate more on the content and, and, you know, and just focus on that. And I think with the white background and eliminating a lot of color and you know, decorations and all this kind of stuff uh, helps a lot for the content to, to stand out. Speaking of the content, I noticed that there's a lot of videos on here, a lot of individual convert stories. Why the emphasis on so many videos and, and so many individual converts? This was probably a decision that was made through, through the missionary department. But, but I'm, uh, the way I see it is that people like to see, are, are more likely to see a video than to read. 
and I think that and on these these uh, video testimonies are, are pretty powerful I think and that helps a lot for the people to to understand what what the site is about or what um, LDS uh, churches I, I come from a from a background where I wasn't um, I'm a convert and when I see these videos they they really have a lot of power to me okay so actually that's the only part I've edited of that in the real one there's actually some pauses there that are really long as he tries to gather his thoughts and things like that so working with audio is just I mean it's another dimension to this whole tech writing profession and how many of you have an iPod or some similar mp3 device everybody right well, not if maybe three people didn't raise their hands. But it's becoming more and more popular to be able to just take your media where you, where you want to go. There was a guy, I have never met him, but I heard this story, that he wanted to make some money. So he uh, made these little videos about how to ski, and he put them on iPods and went up to uh, one of the ski resorts and, and sold them to people because ski lessons cost a lot of money, right? So if you've got it on a little iPod, you're, you're riding the chairlifts and you're watching it and you've got these lessons right in front of you. It's an ingenious idea. And more and more people are giving tips and video through subscribable podcasts and, and blogs and things like that. Screencasts are similar to podcasts, but they basically involve a screen. So you notice there was nothing to watch while you listened to that. And it wasn't, wasn't supposed to be anything to watch. But if I were showing you how to, how to use a, an application, I would probably have a screen that would, that would have a video in there. Anybody have any questions about blogs, screencasts, or podcasts? Yeah. What skills would one need to learn in order to get a job in that field? Well, now you say a job in that field as if, as if this isn't part of what tech writers do. To get a job as a blogger, my ideal job, I have to admit, would be like, chief blogger for the LDS church or something like that, right? <laughs> and some people have that, those sort of titles. You know, you're the corporate blogger. And I think that would be awesome because I could incorporate videos and podcasts and write interesting posts. But more than often, those jobs pay pretty low or they don't pay enough and they require a lot of knowledge that you would need to gather. So I look at it as, this is another dimension to technical writing, is that you produce this kind of stuff. Technical writers are the perfect people to write blog posts because what do people search for online? How-to information. They want, they want knowledge. They don't want marketing material. They don't want hype. They want like raw information in, in a cool way. And that's what you're producing as a tech writer. You're producing, you're actually producing truth, right? You're not trying to spin protein pills or something. So would you say there's a bit of room for creativity? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and in fact, this provides a good balance to, to what you do during the day. I'm starting to write more articles for tech.lds.org because, uh, you know, it's, there's an opportunity there. And, and yeah, we often have a creative side to us. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't want to go into writing. And this totally cures the itch. I have a blog on the side. Uh, at I'dRatherBeWriting.com. So at nights, I'll often blog um, and get all my creative energy out. <laughs> but, but I'm trying to convince you that you don't have to just leave your creative side at home. You can bring that to work. But you may have to teach your employer that you have this skill set to run a blog, to, uh, to create podcasts, and things like that. Any other questions? Okay. What else do I have? Information architecture. And some people specialize in information architecture to the point that they're called information architects more than technical writers. But most technical writers do some level of information architecture. And what this refers to is findability of information. How often have you gone to a site and you can't find anything? It, it happens quite regularly, right? I was at a, when I worked at a financial company in Florida, they had this product they were launching that was a corporate-wide internet, which was replacing these like manual HTML pages that they'd previously maintained. This was a huge project. It was, it was the implementation of a new content management system. And there were 70,000 pages that were going to be migrated into this system. 
And we had a business analyst go through and draw up kind of where she thought everything should go. And while I was documenting how people were supposed to use the system to publish things, all the while, the business analyst said, oh yeah, people will know where to go. They'll, these are arranged logically, and people will find it because they're used to their business domain and their area. Well, it turns out we launched it. People hated it. They couldn't find anything. And they couldn't do anything with it because they'd already spent more than a million dollars on it, right? You can't just go back. And so it was just this, this crux people had to live with. And if we had hired an information architect, or if I had known a lot more at the time about information architecture and been able to get my hands dirty in that, then I think we could have had a better experience. So this site up here is called websort.net, I believe. And what you see on the left are various items in a list. And then on the right, you have different buckets that you put the items. Did any of you participate in the beta version of LDS.org before they made the big change to what it currently is? Well, if you did, you would have gotten an email similar. Um, you would have gotten an email with instructions that would lead you to a site similar to this. And it would have you put where you think things should go. They had seven buckets or something about the church, serving the church, things like that, family and temples. And they asked all kinds of users to just drag where they would put the items. And there's lots of content on LDS.org. I mean, it's not a small site. And lots of different people with different interests. But after having done this, this information architecture usability analysis, however you want to call it, um, I think things are a lot more findable on LDS.org. Uh, if you're looking for certain, certain types of information, you want to have it intuitive to the user where they should go to click it. So that's what information architecture is all about. And I'm personally fascinated with it because I have a blog and I have over 500 posts on the blog. And after the, f the homepage, most of them get buried and people don't find them. So I've always wondered, well, how can I make all that content findable? I want to bring up the content that people are looking for in the moment they're looking for it. And trying to figure out how to do that is what information architecture is really about. There's, there's tagging. Users can add tags, not on my blog, but as a way. And there's, there's other types of strategies. Robert? I just wanted to remind you real quick, you have five minutes left. Five minutes. I know. I know what time it ends. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Finally, this is the last part I wanted to get into. Words, words, words. So I talked about all these other aspects of technical writing that you may not have thought were things that you could do. Um, video and blogs and podcasts and wikis and, and diagrams and things like that. But by and large, you, do, you work with words, right? You're writing things a good part of the day. Your core deliverable, for the most part, is often some kind of guide that contains a lot of words. And um, it, it's actually quite rewarding to be able to work in this. A lot of times, I think people think, well, the VCR manual, it's just click this, push this, do this. Sometimes, and more often than not, you have to explain something that is really complicated. And, and especially when you're working with a product that has been, it's, it's not been produced by seasoned uh, programmers and teams and things like that, so it's a little complicated. Uh, you really have to bend your mind to figure out how am I going to explain this in a way that people can readily understand. And first of all, how am I going to understand it myself? So it's part of the fun and the challenge. I, I was working on a document that had uh, a process that literally took me three days to even understand. And then I thought, if it took me three days to understand, it took me, it's going to be terrible for users. And it took me another like week and a half just to write how they could do it. And uh, it was kind of fun, though. So it really will max your articulation powers, and it will, it will test them. You're not just sitting there, sitting there bored saying, oh, everybody knows how to do this, blah, blah, blah. You're actually stretching your mind thinking, wow, how, how do I do this? And then how do I possibly explain it in a clear, minimalistic, simple way in a, in a one-page document rather than a 55-page manual that you give to people. So I'm winding down here. But uh, a lot of you, as we talked about, you have creative sides to you, as, as do I. And the way I see it is that 
if you want to pursue a novel, if you want to pursue a blog or whatever, technical writing is your day job that provides the financial will that allows you to do other things. One of the reasons I really wanted to teach or present this topic is that um, when I got my degrees in English, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll teach or something. It turned out I didn't like teaching at all. I had, had to grade papers. I hated that. I hated that. And I was actually talking to Brother Allen, and he says that he's got a new method that alleviates a lot of that, and he likes it a lot better. But uh, I found that... <laughs> I, I won't tell that. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> uh, eventually, after I realized that teaching wasn't for me, I, I um, took a job as a copywriter uh, working in Florida, and they sold protein pills, right, which is what I mentioned earlier, and, and other vitamin type things, which in all my research I never found to be necessary. So um, eventually my finances were dropping, right, I, I had some savings and they were going downhill. I said, man, I've got to figure it out because I just do not have enough money to like, survive, to support a family. There's just nothing else that I could do. And uh, at that point I turned to technical writing thinking that it was like this last-ditch effort to try to be the breadwinner of my family. And uh, it turns out that it, was, it wasn't like a, a last resort. It was the perfect fit for me. It was something that was incredibly uh, engaging. It wasn't something that was boring. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, at 5 p.m., rather than going to a second job, which you probably will have to do unless you land a cushy you know, teaching job at a really nice university and you... Uh, have some other kind of finances. Your day ends at five and you have lots of free time in the evenings. You can, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And that is a cool part of technical writing. Um, the fact that you have eight to five hours. You're not, it's not like you're an investment banker or a doctor and you're always on call and you have to go in and work late at nights. It's pretty much uh, a day job and it allows you time for creativity. So even though Maybe during the day, you're not creatively fulfilled. Um, at night, if you take up uh, your novel or your blog or whatever you have that you want to write, you completely solve the problem and make it so that, it's, so that you are creatively fulfilled. Hey, I don't really want to get into finances, but I did take a, a quick poll and ask people, this 220, if they thought they could easily support a family with careers outside of technical writing. And 42% thought that was false. So it's just like an economic reality that I had one day that uh, kind of pushed me in this direction, but it's not what has kept me in the direction. Because obviously there are other options. I just wanted to bring that up. And that's about all that I have. I do have a salary survey and things like that, but I didn't want to get into the money. Um, but technical writers do make a good living. And with that living, you have suddenly have the means to, you know, uh, pursue whatever creative endeavor you have. So keep that in mind. Um, if you have questions, we have another session. So this session was more of a presentation. But this next session, uh, whenever, 10.30 or whatever it is, um, it's more interactive. So you can ask me questions. I'm going to ask you questions, things like that. And we can talk about whatever you'd like. So thank you for your time and attention. <laughs>